Well, thank you for joining me today. You're listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast. I'm Mark Stanley, your host, and we are going to talk about one particular theme today in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Our protagonist, the axe murderer, Raskolnikov, spends the entire book looking for ways to be at peace with the murder that he commits at the beginning of the novel. And Dostoevsky interacts with how human beings look for redemption for their actions. But before we discuss it, I want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast. I want to inform you of our website, wellreadchristian.com. And I want to say that if you want to help the show out, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. You can leave a review on iTunes or our Facebook page and let others know what you think about the content. That is very helpful and it can really help our show get off the ground. So thank you very much for that. All right, let's get right down to it. So last week, we talked about how Dostoevsky is interacting with the new ideas that are being imported from the West into Russia. And while Europe got to slowly develop the modern worldview throughout the Enlightenment, and many countries saw slow incremental steps towards liberalism, Russia was engulfed with modern ideas in an enormous tidal wave. Within one generation, Russia went from being a medieval Christian czarist you know, monarchy situation to a full-blown socialistic, atheistic, Western, modern state. But Dostoevsky thought that these new ideas that were being accepted by the intelligentsia, the universities, and every young, fashionable, modern person, those ideas that I, that I just mentioned, uh, atheism, socialism, utilitarianism, these kinds of things, even though they were being accepted hook, line, and sinker, Dostoevsky thought they were dangerous. The idea that God is an irrelevant fable that the rich invented to keep control over the poor and the capitalists are responsible for poverty and oppression. And if only we could rearrange our economy and give the people, aka the government, the power to intervene for their own behalf, we would usher in a, a utopia. Because one of the hallmarks of Marxism and socialism is atheism. And the reason for that is that the Marxist presupposition is that people are basically good, but it's the free market that dominates human behavior. And if everyone only had a living wage, we would all live peacefully and everybody would get along and there'd be no more poverty, no more crime, no more religion to tell people what to do. But Dostoevsky, along with Nietzsche, who we've previously discussed, realized that Christianity stands not just as a pillar, but as the entire foundation of our society. And if you take out God and you take out God's rules, you take out his legacy, you're going to take out a lot more than you bargained for. And you will end up with a lawless universe. One of the very specific consequences of atheism that Dostoevsky was chiefly concerned about was the lack of a moral law if God doesn't exist. And of course, it stands to reason that a moral law requires a moral lawgiver. So if God doesn't exist, then morality is necessarily a construct of human origins, a social contract, as Jackie's Rousseau said, or perhaps a byproduct of evolution, as many thinkers today would assert. So Dostoevsky says, okay, well, let's say morality is a construct, a man-made fabrication. That means that the commandment, thou shalt not murder, for example, is just a man-made rule. It's kind of like a stop sign or a gentleman's agreement. There's nothing really binding about it. It's just something we all kind of agree upon. So murder isn't actually wrong. It's just radically antisocial behavior. 
Well, what if there's a circumstance where murder would be conceivably justified? What if you were a poor and starving student and you had the means, the motive, and the opportunity to get rid of an oppressive and evil old woman who lorded her wealth over others as a pawnbroker and took every last possession from the beggars in the streets, someone who beats her younger sister routinely, someone who has no family or friends and is going to die anyways because she's old, and when she dies, no one will care, and her money, which she has a lot of and she hoards for no reason, will be given to the church. Nobody will even miss her if she was going to be removed from the picture, even she wouldn't really miss herself since she's not that happy of a person. And after all, once he takes the money, he can do all kinds of good with it. He can finish school. He can further human advancement with his profound ideas. He can free his sister from marrying some rich schmuck just so that the family doesn't have to starve. And the whole world be a better place because he had the courage to kill this horrible old lady. And the only reason he wouldn't do it is because he's a coward. And on atheism, that is true. The death of this old woman would be a net gain for the world. And so there's no such thing as individualism or the spark of divinity or being created in the image of God or transcendent moral laws or the Ten Commandments or justice or any of those things. Those are all man-made fabrications. And so the only reason he wouldn't kill this woman is because he just didn't have the guts to do it. And so he goes through with it, and he kills her. And he's driven absolutely insane from the guilt. His faculties seem to betray him. He can't even think straight. He begins to develop almost like a schizophrenic disorder because half of him is convinced that he's a hero, that he did the right thing, the hard thing that no one else was willing to do, and he liberated a few dozen people from their unfair loans. He fed himself with some of her money and his sister who was going to marry this guy who's rich but a total jerk just so that she doesn't have to starve. He got rid of this miserable old wretch who abused her sister. Her sister was named uh, Lizavetta. And now, now that he got that out of the way and hopefully he'll be able to come back and unbury more treasure that he hid away, now he can devote his life to becoming the next Isaac Newton or Napoleon Bonaparte who have, well, Napoleon has killed people before and no one even remembers. All, they only remember the advancements that he's done. And Raskolnikov reasons, if Isaac Newton had killed someone in order to publish his ideas, no one would even care because Newton's ideas were more important than individual people's lives. And so as long as you're advancing the human race forward, killing some inconvenient people is justified because after all, What's the difference in a hundred years? The difference is no one remembers the person. Everyone remembers the progress. The ends justify the means. So the deaths of a few inconvenient people will fuel a truly great cause. And if you had to kill someone in order to publish your truly great ideas, you would have a moral obligation to do it because the ends justify the means. That's the idea. And so... This murdered woman would be a footnote of history. If she is lucky, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. But then again, in flashes of reality, Raskolnikov sees himself as a murderer. So he's torn. There's that side of him which says he did the right thing, that he's a hero. But then there's the weak side, as he calls it. The side that says, no, I'm, I'm not a hero. I'm a, 
I'm a murderer. I killed a woman. And then her younger sister came in and I had to kill her too. So there's this tear as Raskolnikov asks himself, who am I? Am I a hero or am I a murderer? Am I a savior to my own sister and all the poor beggars who pawned their last possessions for a few scraps of food? Or am I a bandit, a scoundrel who looted and killed? And he appears to be both. But Raskolnikov cannot think of himself as a hero, despite all the quote-unquote good that he has done. In reality, all he has done is killed an old woman and her sister and is now hiding in his apartment, a shriveled, weak, pathetic person. And this all happens very early in the book, and then we see through the investigation one particular detective named Porfiry Petrovich, who has been reading Raskolnikov's papers on his Superman theory, the, the man who could wade through blood if it meant the advancement of human progress, and he has a keen eye on not only these ideas of utilitarian ethics, but also of atheism and socialism and, and revolution and these kinds of ideas. And he's awfully suspicious of Raskolnikov because he knows what's going on inside of Raskolnikov's intellectual head. Porfiry reasons, if this guy acted out what he believed, he could be the murderer and meanwhile, nobody suspects Raskolnikov at all. The police have no idea who killed this old woman and her sister. And Raskolnikov hasn't gone on any spending sprees. He's buried the money somewhere else. There's no material evidence that he's any kind of a murderer. Uh, he knew the pawnbroker, sure, but everybody knew the pawnbroker. And everybody hated the pawnbroker. Then no one has any motives to kill her more than anyone else. And so the trail is cold. But despite how cold the trail is, Raskolnikov's conscience is red hot. He nearly confesses the crime several times just to get the guilt off of his chest, just to get the whole matter resolved so that he can move on. And that's the story. It's Raskolnikov trying to resolve that inner tension while also evading suspicion and, and finding those mental engagements as a chess game where he can test his fortitude and his strength against a person like Porfiry. And then, of course, as he tells himself every day that he's a hero and not a murderer, and that Napoleon killed people and he's considered a hero, all Raskolnikov has to do is advance the human race or do some good for the world, and that justifies all of it. All of it. But wait a minute. Even if I did nothing, I am justified. That woman deserved to die. And so his insanity spirals, and he goes back and forth, and pings and pongs, and sleeps and can't sleep and has a fever and is running through the streets and you name it. Well, while Raskolnikov is wrestling with all of these things, he goes out one night to a bar and he meets a drunkard named Marmeladov. And while talking to Marmeladov, he learns that Marmeladov's family is desperately poor, like many at the time in St. Petersburg. And he's also desperately drunk. And he used to be an officer, but those days are long gone. And he recently got a job, but he sold his uniform in order to buy more alcohol. And so, of course, he lost the job, and he doesn't want to come home to his wife and kids and confess that he has lost this job as a county clerk or something like that. And so he's staying at the bar, all wretched and miserable, and he's trying to bury his guilt in alcohol. And Raskolnikov finds this very peculiar. 
It's almost as if Dostoevsky is saying, see, so here's one way that guilty people deal with their guilt. They go to the bar and they drink it to death. They drown it in alcohol. They get hopelessly drunk and they destroy their lives and the lives of everybody who depend on them. And there's no redemption in that. Raskolnikov quickly sees that. That is not a good answer to the problem of guilt and shame. Escapism. And in case you're sitting there going, oh, well, I don't deal with, I don't use alcohol to escape my guilt. Well, maybe there are other ways of escapism. Pornography or marijuana or even just massive Netflix binges or food. There's all kinds of ways that we try to escape our realities or our guilt. And I think through the character Marmeladov, we see Raskolnikov, who is wrestling with his guilt, look at the escapism and go, that's a bad answer. <laughs> that just makes it worse and worse and worse, and then you die. And then, of course, to add insult to injury, in the story, Marmeladov is stumbling in the streets after telling Raskolnikov his sad tale and telling Raskolnikov all about his story. Well, he fumbles outside of the bar a few days later, and he falls over, and a cart is driving by and runs over his head, and it kills him. And so now he's spent every last dime that the Marmeladov family had, and he's dead. And the family that he's left behind has been absolutely devastated, of course. And the only way they've been able to get by is that Marmeladov's eldest daughter has been going to shady parts of the town and selling her body and giving the money to her mother so they can feed her younger siblings, of which I believe she has two. Very horrible stuff, dark stuff. And so Raskolnikov approaches the family and he meets Sonia and he begins secretly giving them money that he's acquired, usually from his own mother who's mailing money. Uh, or, of course, he has little odds and ends jobs that uh, his good friend uh, is also able to hook him up with. And so he's, he has some money occasionally and he gives a lot of it to Sonia so that she doesn't have to prostitute herself as often, at least. And uh, that, that kind of a thing. And so as he meets Sonia and as he begins to interact with that family, what he realizes is that Sonia also has guilt. And Raskolnikov is attracted to the pure and good spirit that Sonia has underneath her guilt and her ugly profession. And Sonia is attracted to the generosity and the friendship that Raskolnikov offers. And so the two become fast friends. And they pursue some kind of a, a relationship. And of course, Sonia has never had any kind of a real relationship. No one will come even close to her. They know her job. That's a, you know, you're not friends with that kind of a person. But Raskolnikov does befriend her because he understands what it's like to be guilty and isolated and alone. And so as the characters interact, Raskolnikov begins to know Sonia a little more. And he, he, he comes to discover that the way Sonia deals with her guilt and her shame is much different than the way Marmeladov did it through escapism or the way Raskolnikov has been doing it, which is simply insanity and following your whims and, and falling into deep spouts of thought where you ignore people and you shun people and you have to logically go step by step through all of your problems, but you keep having to redo your steps because your faculties are just racked by emotion. And even though both of them have done wicked things, Sonia turns to the Bible. Sonia turns to Christianity. She turns to Christ with her guilt and her shame. 
And while Raskolnikov is stuck in his narcissism and his high and mighty ideas that actually he's a hero for killing this woman, Sonia is humble and she's filled with faith. And there's this beautiful scene which is slightly tarnished by Raskolnikov's wickedness and pride where Sonia is opening up to Raskolnikov about the guilt that she feels over being a prostitute and how ashamed and corrupt she feels because of her awful profession. But in the conversation, she reveals that her one hope, the one thing which she clings to with everything that she is, is this idea that God loves her and will forgive her and redeem her. And she has this precious little old Bible that she reads every day, and she reads it to her younger siblings, and she used to read it to her best friend, Lizaveta, before she was mysteriously murdered. And Raskolnikov is a little surprised that Sonia knew Lizaveta, but he begins making fun of her for her belief, making fun of her for believing that a god exists or that the scriptures haven't been corrupted or made up or you name it, and mocking her one treasure. You know, she should be more like Raskolnikov. She should take pride. You know, she's doing the right thing, and it's an ugly situation, but she should be bold. But Sonia is not. She is humble. And so Raskolnikov takes this Bible that Sonia has that was actually given to her by Lizaveta, the murdered uh, sister, the younger sister that was a slave to the pawnbroker, and he takes this Bible and he asks Sonia, tell me where the story of the raising of Lazarus is. And for Raskolnikov, this is an important story because at the time, there was fierce debate in Russia about whether the Bible could be taken seriously, whether it could be taken literally, whether the miracles really happened. And so there's an interesting scene where Porfiry, the investigator, is asking Raskolnikov whether he believes in the raising of Lazarus. And so this story, this Bible story, becomes an important piece in Crime and Punishment because it, it comes to symbolize whether you can trust God, whether you can trust the Bible, whether Christianity is true, whether there is such thing as the raising of the dead, the redemption of our bodies, the forgiveness of our sins. And so Sonia knows exactly where the story is, and she tells him, and, and Raskolnikov flips the Bible to that passage, and, and he reads the story. And as he's reading, he notices that there are some tear stains on the pages where he's reading. And as he's reading, Sonia again begins to weep. And Raskolnikov has a sick and twisted smile as he gets some strange pleasure out of seeing the fact that she is so weak and humble before him and he is intellectually superior and has all these doubts as to how that story could be true and different ways that that story perhaps was corrupted or embellished over the years and or whatever else you know he he's he takes pride in his doubt is what i'm trying to say and as he reads the story of jesus going to a man who's been dead for 3 days and saying come out and the man gets up and stumbles out of the tomb and rips off the burial linens because he's been buried for three days. <laughs> Quite the incredible story. And this is what Sonia has been clinging to, because she believes that her Jesus 
can redeem her dead and rotting corpse of a body that she lives in. And so Sonia is at peace with her guilt as she continually brings it to Jesus in hopes that he will resurrect her on the last day, which is what Martha tells to Jesus when Jesus says to her, Lazarus shall live again. And Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha answers, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. End quote. And so this phrase is in- incredibly important to Sonia, who is saying to herself, Lord, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. And then, of course, in the story, Jesus turns and says, Lazarus, come out. And suddenly Lazarus stumbles out of the tomb and starts pulling off all of the linens that were wrapped around a dead body. He's been decaying for three days, and the Jews are absolutely dumbfounded. And Jesus says, get him out of those linens. And so this story is what Sonia has been clinging to for her redemption. She believes that Jesus will redeem her because he promised to redeem those who believe in him. And Raskolnikov is arrogant in his pride and in his doubt. He doesn't need any Bible stories. He's the Superman that he wrote about in his essay, the man who can wade through blood if it means progress for the human race. And eventually, Raskolnikov does confess to Sonia that he is the one who killed the pawnbroker and Lizaveta. And Sonia, of course, is horrified at this. Aliona, who was the pawnbroker, and her sister, Lizaveta, were very close friends with Sonia. Lizaveta was Sonia's best friend. She's the one who gave Sonia her Bible, and they would read it together every night. Sonia is, of course, shocked to learn that now her only friend, Raskolnikov, is actually a murderer. And not only a murderer, but a murderer of her best friend and her best friend's sister. But Sonia does something incredible. Rather than think about herself and the harm Raskolnikov has done to her, and obviously to Lizaveta and the pawnbroker, Sonia wants what is best for Raskolnikov. She forgives him. She not only forgives him, she wants what's best for him. Sonia begins seeking Raskolnikov's redemption even before Raskolnikov does, which is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Christ comes to us in order to redeem us before we ever knew or cared that we even needed redeeming. And so Sonia then becomes the Christ figure in the Lazarus story, which is, of course, the gospel. It's Christians realizing what Jesus has done for them and realizing that they need the redemption that Christ offers and then suffering in order to bring that redemption to other people. And one of the most powerful ways to do that is give radical forgiveness because Sonia has already been forgiven. Christ is redeeming Sonia and will redeem Sonia. And Sonia 
can now forgive. And the power of that forgiveness can be radical. And so what Sonia does is offer a beautiful picture of the gospel. Christ comes to redeem us, and Sonia is going to try and redeem Raskolnikov. And so what she tells him is that you will never be right with yourself, with your conscience, with God, with society. You will never be a whole person until you realize how broken and desperate and guilty you are. And when you confess your crime and ask forgiveness from God, and then of course from society as well, then you can begin a healing process. Then your broken and decaying and dying body will be raised to life on the last day. And so Raskolnikov goes back and forth with whether he believes Sonia, whether he's willing to stoop down and humble himself to believe this story, if it really is just a story, of course. Because you have to realize belief isn't just believing in something. It's also giving up something. It's giving up the theory that you are right and that you are justified in your actions and that you are the protagonist of your life and that everything you do is justified. And so for Raskolnikov, it means giving up his Superman theory. It means admitting that he's not a hero, that he's a murderer. And so there's a few days in there where Raskolnikov says, okay, all right, I'm going to confess. And then, no, 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 that's all rubbish. I can't, I can't believe it. I can't believe in God. I can't believe in the Lazarus story. That's ridiculous. And so he goes, he goes back and forth. And, and one day, Porfiry, the police investigator, shows up at his house. It's Porfiry. It doesn't go like that, but that's the general gist. And so Raskolnikov opens the door. And... Porfiry takes his hat off and says, Raskolnikov, Rodian, my friend. And they have become somewhat friends at this point. Porfiry engages with Raskolnikov almost like a father figure. He says, can I come in? And, you know, and he does, and they have tea and whatever. And Porfiry says, I know that you killed Lizaveta and Alyona. Well, now Raskolnikov's pride is in it. You know, he's been playing these secret mind games with Porfiry for months now. He knows Porfiry, Porfiry doesn't have any physical proof or evidence, only psychological evidence. And that can be explained away to a journey or a, a, a jury. Remember, Raskolnikov is a lawyer <laughs> or is studying to be a lawyer anyway. But Porfiry insists. He says, Raskolnikov, I, I came here to ask you to turn yourself in. I'm not going to arrest you. I want you to make the choice yourself. And I'll, I'll see you at the police station tomorrow. And Raskolnikov says, well, how do you know that I won't run off? If you're so sure that I'm the murderer, and you just came and told me that you are so sure, why wouldn't I just run away, escape? And Porfiry says, well, yeah, maybe you will. But that'll be worse for you. This murder, your actions, they will follow you. And they will follow you even where I can't follow you. Your guilt will pursue you to the ends of the earth. It will follow you past the grave, and that's far past my jurisdiction. Even if you never serve a legal sentence, you will be a slave of your crime forever. And so Raskolnikov says, enough of this. If you're so sure I'm the murderer, then arrest me. Arrest me right now, and we'll go to court, and we will argue. 
Raskolnikov is confident in his abilities to argue. But Porfiry says, no, Rodion, I'm not going to do that. If I arrest you and you're convicted, you'll get a life sentence in Siberia. You'll die there, alone, cold, guilty, and miserable. You have to let go yourself. You have to come to the station and confess. That's the only way that the justice system will give you anything close to grace. And that's the only way that you yourself will find any peace or redemption. So Rodian says, okay, well, get out. If you're not going to arrest me, get out. And Porfiry says, as you wish. I'll see you tomorrow, Rodion Raskolnikov Romanovich. And he leaves. Knowing that Raskolnikov is guilty and that he's gotten into his head and he's been following him and he's been studying him closely for weeks and he wants what's best for Raskolnikov. There's no material evidence, but Raskolnikov's guilt has been screaming to the trained or just the attentive observer. And the next day, Rodion does come to the police station, and to everyone's shock and amazement, counter to the expectations of everyone in town except for Porfiry and Sonia, Raskolnikov confesses that he murdered the pawnbroker and the pawnbroker's sister, Alyona and Lizaveta. And he's sentenced to eight years of hard labor in Siberia rather than a life sentence because he was able to confess. He also returned the little loot that he stole in order to prove his testimony. And you might say, wow, eight years of hard labor, that's not, that's not a life sentence. I mean, that's eight years and you're scot-free. Well, <laughs> no, eight years of hard labor in Siberia basically is a life sentence. <laughs> but but it's, a, it's a shot. It's a shot at redemption. It's a shot at, at life. And even though Raskolnikov confesses, he still says to himself, well, I'll do my time and then things will be right. I'll be square with society and life will move on. And, and maybe I'm not a Superman. Maybe I'm not an Ubermensch. Maybe I'm not a Newton or a Napoleon. But that doesn't mean that my ideas are wrong. And so even though Raskolnikov confesses, he, he understands the jig is up, but he hasn't actually repented. He hasn't actually pursued redemption. He hasn't become humble. He hasn't believed and so Sonia goes with him to Siberia, and every day Sonia visits him at the prison and brings him food while he is working in the fields. And all the other prisoners grow to know and love Sonia, and Raskolnikov realizes how powerful the love of Christ is, that Sonia would accept and love the murderer of her best friend and move her whole life to follow him and be with him in prison every day to make sure that he gets through it that he's doing okay, that he's well-fed. Raskolnikov starts out accepting his suffering, but not asking for forgiveness. He confesses that he killed her, and he suffers for the, the crime, the violation of the social contract. But he's not going to say that he was wrong or that he was sorry. But Sonia keeps visiting him every day and living out her forgiveness with her actions. And Raskolnikov realizes as the years go by, that he will never be happy unless he can be fully forgiven, not just by society, but by God. And at the very, very end, on the last page, Sonia's love finally breaks him, and he receives forgiveness from God 
and he trusts in Christ to redeem him and resurrect him on the last day and forgive him for breaking the moral law, for offending a holy God by thinking that he could rise up and shed the blood of an innocent person without the vengeance of God falling upon him. And so Crime and Punishment is the story of an axe murderer and a prostitute who fall in love and seek redemption together. And it's powerful because the book is many things simultaneously. It's a crime thriller. It's a philosophical treatise on ethics. It's a story about redemption. And it's a guidebook for reality. What do you do when you are really, really wrong or when you really really mess up and you cross a line that can never ever be uncrossed is that it is that the end is it over are you done for are you ruined is there always a path towards redemption not full restoration but something even more beautiful even more profound even more important nothing will ever bring Lizaveta and Aliona back nothing will ever Make it so you can uncross that line that you crossed. But even if restoration is impossible, redemption is right there to any who believe. And Dostoevsky illustrates that on the Christian worldview, the answer is yes, redemption is always possible because the furniture of Christianity the God who can satisfy the demands of justice while simultaneously forgiving criminals is always available. We can escape the punishment for our crime. But apart from Christianity, if you take an atheistic worldview, there's no such thing as evil. Everything is a social construct or evolutionary suggestions. You have to tell yourself that you're a hero for murdering people who are leeches on society. It's an unlivable philosophy. That's the idea in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, that atheism is unlivable as a philosophy. I mentioned last week that Crime and Punishment is structured like the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke 15. That Dostoevsky writes... And he describes the radical departure of the Russian youth from tradition, from the Russian legacy, from Christianity. And they run off and they squander what they've been given in exchange for what the West has to offer intellectually. And an entire generation of Russian youth said, you know what? We're done with the fairy tales of Christianity. We're done with God. We're done with Jesus. We're done with kings and lords. We're done with peasants. We're done with clergy. We're definitely done with the church. And we're going to leap forward to a new era. But Dostoevsky said, if you abandon God, you'll live in a godless world. Without God, you don't have any of God's rules. And without God's rules, anything is permissible. And if you rise up and you try to create the Tower of Babel, the perfect society, if you worship the anthill, then you will destroy Russia and society will become unglued. And those are his favorite metaphors for socialism, by the way, the Tower of Babel and the anthill. It's the attempt to find meaning and purpose and significance and your code of ethics from the collective. Individually, you're an ant, but together... You are significant, you are strong, you are given order, a purpose. 
Dostoevsky says, you cannot find glory in the collective. You cannot root out evil by targeting the rich. You cannot eject religion without also rejecting the bedrock of ethics. And go ahead, try to live that out. See what happens. And that's exactly what crime and punishment is. It's an exposure of that philosophy lived out. Live like individuals don't matter. See what happens. There are consequences. If you live like the collective is what matters, individuals become pawns. If it's the result that counts, then how you get there is inconsequential. And you don't want to live in a society where how you get there is inconsequential. You don't want to live in a society where individuals are encouraged to wade through blood if it means progress. You'll destroy everything you touch with your narcissistic rampage. But it doesn't have to be this way, says Dostoevsky. Come back. Believe and repent. It turns out that Christianity is not just fairy tales and clergymen. There are way bigger pieces at play, more fundamental axioms of human nature that cannot be tinkered with. Well, the Russians of the early 20th century did not heed Dostoevsky's warnings, nor did they listen to the criticisms of their ideas. Vladimir Lenin, a young socialist revolutionary, very much like Raskolnikov, led the Bolshevik Revolution in 1918 and created the Soviet Union. He invented the concentration camp for political dissidents, and in the ultimate act of narcissism, said to all the nation, if you will only shut up and sit down and let me run things for a second, you'll see that things will get better and my way is superior. I will usher in the utopia. But the more resistance he got, the more blood was shed, and he had to keep forcing his vision of change. And after 60 long years and 60 million corpses to show for it, the Marxist nightmare finally ended. And we are going to talk about some of the literature that came from that time because it is such a fascinating human experiment. And there's so much we can learn about human beings from that experiment. The socialist experiment failed dramatically. And it's not exactly a mystery why, but the evidence is all there. And it's so important to know what the 20th century can teach us. And Dostoevsky is extremely relevant today because our modern youth right here in the United States of America and beyond are saying the same things and believing the same ideas. Atheism, nihilism, utilitarianism, modernism, radical liberalism, scientism, God doesn't exist, life has no meaning, old people should just die already. If only the rich would stop oppressing the rest of us you can't know anything unless science can prove it. And your rights are given and taken away by the state. We're done with the church. We're done with Christianity. We're done with you bigots. These are the good guys. These are the bad guys. Make sure you're on the right side of history. We're coming after you. Do you see the rise of totalitarianism? Do you see how the same questions are being asked in our universities today? Do you see how people are turning to the collective to find meaning and purpose and significance and ethics? Do you see the logic of some of our politicians? If only you would shut up and let me run things for a few years, you would see that things are better. If only the 1% would pay their fair share. If only we could round up 
the kulaks, as they called them in Russia, and seize their wealth and give it to the poor, then everything would be peachy. And the question is, will the West follow in the footsteps of Russia and China and Cambodia and every other country which followed socialist principles to their logical conclusion? Or will we heed Dostoevsky's warnings? Will we, will we return to Christianity, to Christ? And will we take responsibility for our own evil natures to admit that we are not the superman that Raskolnikov wrote about in that final essay? We do not have the right to break moral laws because moral laws are above everybody. They're put in place by God and enforced by nature. And I want to end this episode by saying that you're probably not an axe murderer, but you certainly need redemption. And you may not be a prostitute, but you still need Christ. The Christian formula of confession, admitting to God and others that you're an evildoer in need of forgiveness and faith, believing that Christ paid the death penalty that you deserve on your behalf so that you can have a restored relationship with God, and then finally repentance, living out that belief in your everyday life as you pursue a relationship with God. Everyone needs those things, confession, faith, repentance. And I think that crime and punishment is a beautiful display of the gospel. And I hope that you see and recognize not only the significant themes for world history and philosophy, but also for you personally. Because ultimately, Dostoevsky isn't writing about philosophy and world politics and and these kinds of things. Dostoevsky is writing about people. He's writing about you. And he's writing about me. Well, thank you for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast, and I hope you join me next week to finish out our series on crime and punishment. say he's writing about me, I mean that literally. This is my confession. I've killed somebody. I'm a murderer. Dostoevsky wrote about me. (laughs) Uh, No. No, I haven't killed anybody. But I do need Jesus. That is undeniable.